If you would please turn to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> we are about at the end of, uh, of our spiritual warfare series, one more Sunday. And we have talked about how Satan attacks us through culture and how Satan sabotages our relationships. And this month we are talking about how Satan speaks to us personally, intimately, through our thought patterns. Two weeks ago, we said that uh, you are most likely to hear him say, you alone have the problems that you do. Everyone else is fine. You're weird. You should be ashamed. Don't tell anybody. Last week, we heard him say, you alone are responsible for the problems of the world. And if things don't get fixed, it's your fault. You should be ashamed. You should stay alone. This week, we face another lie that most of us have heard who have been tragically and permanently hurt. If we have gone through very, very difficult times, and if we are now still going through either those times or the memories of those times, Satan will say to us, things will never get any better. It will always be like this. You'll always be in this much pain. Let me read to you a story from the Gospel of Luke about a woman who had given up hope. And let me tell you why. So that we can explain the difference between an Ellie Weissel, who indeed does give up all hope, and a Gerda, who hope against hope, evidence against hope, continues to plan for a wonderful future. Starting with verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her. Now, let me pause for just a moment. All through the Gospels, Jesus is healing people. But in the overwhelming majority of the cases, it is the people who are coming to Jesus requesting healing. This is an indication of the fact that she had stopped asking altogether. She would given up. She didn't want to be disappointed again, and therefore she was not approaching God any longer. It was God who had to initiate this encounter and this healing. He said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. And the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. See, healing was considered work, and you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the multitude in response, There are six days in which work should be done, and therefore during them. Come and get healed. And not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, should she have not been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? 
One of the reasons that that woman had lost hope was not just the longevity of her problem, but it was the fact that she was a part of a society that had so focused, so narrowly focused, the performances of God. And when he could and when he couldn't perform, and when people could and when they could not go to him, that they had lost the point. You see, Jesus that day talked to the Pharisees and he said, wait, 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 wait. Yes, there are cycles. Yes, the Sabbath is for rest. Yes, we are to honor God. But you're just getting part of the story. You have limited the Sabbath to its lowest common denominator and you are not permitting a higher employee a higher use of that holy day. Could I say to you that Christians do exactly the same thing? With most of the concepts we've been taught, we only share their lowest common denominator and do not fathom the highest use that they could be put to. Grace is a concept most of us know. The Bible says we are saved by grace. And most of us know grace to be unmerited favor. Okay, I can't earn salvation. I don't deserve salvation. Therefore, God's going to have to forgive me in order for me to get saved. It's got to be initiated with him. And that's the understanding of grace we have. And it is a correct understanding. But most of us never go further to say grace is not only forgiveness. It's power to live life in the fullness of God. We never discover that part of it because we have so narrowly focused on that concept. Just as the Jews had narrowly focused the youth use of the Sabbath. We, we talk about uh, holiness. You know, those of us who get tired of ruining our life with sin say, man, I need to straighten out my behavior. <laughs> this isn't getting any easier. It's kind of hard on me. And sin is. It's hard on us. And so we connect holiness with behavior modification. If I, can, if I can learn to live more constructively, if I can learn to be holy, then, then I will be relieved. And it's true, we are. I mean, when you don't sin anymore, you're relieved, aren't you? But who even conceptualizes holiness as the, as the, the sense of for, fulfillment of pleasing a holy God, of being like God. You shall be holy because I'm holy. Who even fathoms the fact that if you live in holiness, you will have a sense of power and service about your life, a sense of fulfillment that you've never had before. You won't just be avoiding bad, destructive behavior. You will have a whole positive side you've never had before. Same thing with... uh, uh, the idea of faith, you know? What's faith? Well, faith is what you what you got to have when you go through tough times in order to get you through them. Well, you do. I mean, faith is a coping device. But it took the, the charismatic movement in the 60s to teach the church in general that faith was not only something to get you through something. Faith made things happen. I mean, it brought things forth. Now, the charismatic movement has gone through a lot of, uh, of uh, immaturity. And it has a lot of things wrong with it. But one thing that the church would be totally impoverished without the charismatic movement is that definition of faith. 
where it has a positive element. God doesn't just want us to cope. He doesn't just want to get us through. He wants to add things, create things in our lives. See? We are the products of a society like that society that has so narrowly defined, so exclusively defined our lives that we are suffering for it. We are myopic. We just see through a narrow window and because we miss the total picture, we do stupid stuff. Look at the... Look at the I'll give you a good example. Look at the legal system. You heard... Uh, uh, Dan Quayle this week went and addressed the American Bar Association and said there are too many lawyers. And you know the, re- you know the response he got. Well, I, you know, I can admire that, you know, because he's, he is right, you know. Um, now, I, don't want, I know there's lawyers, there's all kinds of lawyers in here, and uh, hear me out here, and you will agree with what I have to say, basically. First of all, we have become so focused on the technicalities of the law we have forgot the law's larger purpose. We have become so focused that verdicts have been handed down that are absolutely contrary to all common sense. They are stupid. Maybe, maybe many of you heard uh, not too long ago there was a burglary in operation in, the, in a high school. And a burglar fell through the skylight from trying to break into a school, fell through the skylight in a high school. Then he sued the high school because the skylight was unsafe. He was awarded by the jury $260,000 because the school was liable for having an unsafe skylight, even for a burglar. Not only that, but the school board has to pay him a $1,200 a month stipend in addition to that original liability claim. Do you know how, of course you know how silly that is. I see it on your faces. You know, you know why things like that happen? Because we become so narrowly focused on the technicalities of the law that we lose all common sense. We lose the larger picture. And we are becoming a society that believes that we are confined to what we have instead of we can produce more. You can see that by the ratio of engineers that we have to attorneys. And you've heard me quote these these statistics before. America has 5% of the world's population, 70% of attorneys. We have more attorneys in Florida than they do in the whole country of Japan. In Japan, there are 20 engineers. Engineers are those that figure out how to produce more. There are 20 engineers to every one attorney. In the United States, there are 2.5 engineers to every one attorney, and the ratio is going down fast. We have become so boggled. You know, in England, it takes... Uh, three weeks to probate a will. In America, it takes an average of 17 months. We have become so boggled in all of this. You know why? Because we have the mentality that you get by taking from other people instead of producing. No country has ever sued its way to greatness. It never has. But we are in the same mentality as the Pharisees that says, let's increase the technical expertise so that we can get more of our share of the pie instead of making the pie bigger. Instead of having the larger picture. And that breeds a scarcity mentality. It breeds a fear. It breeds a frustration. Let me show you something. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. Jesus is talking 
but the eye being the lamp of the body. He said the lamp of the body is the eye. If, therefore, your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Now, now I want to show you. The, the word for clear in, in the Greek is haplos. And it means to be generous, to be wide open. It means to see the larger picture. And so what Jesus is saying is, if your eye can see the whole picture instead of just a little bit of the picture, your whole body is going to be full of light. But watch this. If your eye is bad, now if you've got a King James Version, the word is evil. Remember how we used to have the word, give somebody the evil eye? What do you do when you give them the evil eye? You go like this. Don't you? Give them the evil eye. You're, you're kind of, see? If, you're, if your eye is bad or evil, what to say? Your whole body will be full of darkness. The Greek there is poneros. It means to be stingy or narrow. It means to be so focused on one aspect you can't see anything else. See? What Jesus is saying is when we can only focus on one thing, we think that's the whole world. And our whole body is full of darkness, especially if that is a destructive, awful hurt. Now, here's what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to do exactly that. Focus on that one thing and believe that that is the whole world. And believe that life can never get any better until that thing gets resolved. And believe that that thing must be resolved by God and it must be resolved quickly and until it's resolved, life can't really go on. Any country boys in here ever go frog gigging? Frog gigging. You know what frog gigging is? Let me explain, let me explain it to you. I'm a city boy, but I can explain it how, it was, how it explained me. When you go frog gigging, you take along a pitchfork, kind of like Satan's, and a light. And you go out in swamps. And you shine the light around, and you get a frog in the light. And you know what the frog does? The frog just goes like this. Becomes absolutely mesmerized by the light. Doesn't move. So it's no contest at all just to go, you got yourself a frog. Right? Guess what Christians do when they have a problem? And Satan just goes, see? Because that's our whole world, we think. That's everything, you see. And Satan wants us to believe that, not only so that we won't move, but so that even as the opportunity comes up to escape, listen to this, we won't take it. We won't take it because we have become so familiar with fighting this thing, so familiar with hurting from this thing, that we will stay in that miserable familiarity rather than take the way out. I don't know how many of you, when you were in high school, read the classic or in college, No Exit by Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre was a French existentialist. He was not a believer. But he had written a play that depicted hell as a little waiting room in which three people sat forever. Now, picture this. Hell is being in a waiting room with people you hate. Well, that's not exactly true, 
Each of them liked a different one of them. One person liked one, and that person liked the other one, and this person liked the other one. So none of them could have their friendship requited. None of them could have a reciprocal relationship. And they lived that way, and the conversation was poisonous, and the conversation was destructive. And finally, they got so fed up that at the end of that play, play they started banging on the door to get out and trying to, 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 to jimmy the lock. You know what happened? The door swung open. And you know what happened then? They didn't go out. They began to make excuses why they should stay there. In their Misery. I would say to you that it is from the focus that we get mesmerized and therefore immobilized. The difference between Greta and Ellie Weissel was that Ellie Weissel saw all of God in one event. He focused his entire theology in one event peace of human evil destruction and therefore there was no more out there yet Greta who had gone through the same kind of suffering, seen the same kind of death, losing every one of her family members continued to dream of the day she would have a husband and children and things would be better she was saved in hope When the devil can get us to focus on that one awful, hurtful event, if he can get us to say, that is all there is to life, he is one. If he can get us to say, there is no more that we need to participate in, because we've got to get this thing taken care of first, he has won. Let me show you um, in uh, Luke chapter 24. Let me read this passage to you. I love this passage. These are two people who love Jesus. And and a few days after his resurrection, their hopes are dashed because they've seen him nailed to a cross. And they are so discouraged. And they can't get their mind off of that event. And they're walking on their way, verse 13, and they are talking about the crucifixion of Christ. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while, now remember that word, that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now, why do you think their eyes were prevented from recognizing him? They just kept looking into the devil's event. They were mesmerized. He comes alongside. They don't don't shift their focus. They don't look beyond it. See? Watch. And he said to them, So, uh, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, 
named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Well, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene. Oh, who was a prophet, mighty indeed. You can see the, you know, just the inside of them going again. And word in the sight of God and all the people. And then it comes crashing down. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. And these are some of the saddest words in all the Bible. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. See? It's crushed now. We once had hope. We don't have it anymore. And Jesus sits with them a while and explains to them how it was necessary for this thing to happen, where this horrible event fits into the whole picture of things, trying to get their eyes, hoplos, a little bigger here. And they're going... And finally he says, well, I'm going on down the road. And they said, well, stop and have some supper with us. And, and the Bible says, in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened. Hoplos. See? They recognized him. And they said, did our hearts not burn while he was explaining the scriptures to us? See? Now, very, very, very important. There is a part of hope that is translated meanwhile. Meanwhile. That does not say that you can reverse the past tragedy that has happened. But what are you doing during the intervening time? Isn't there something else in life to concentrate on? Isn't there something else in life to pay attention to? God was not confined to that. He comes right alongside. He wasn't trapped in the crucifixion. He comes right alongside walking with those people. He is not trapped in your sin. He is not trapped in your devastation. He is not living in your past. He's alongside you right now. Meanwhile, what are you doing? I had a man come in to see me some time ago. And he looked like a whipped dog. I said, what's happening? He said, I'm dying. And I looked at him and he was right. He was dying. I said, tell me. And he very articulately, very eloquently, began to tell me the story of his life and a horrible thing that he had done years ago. And as I listened to him, I listened to all the regret. And I listened to all the hurt. He continued to cry through the entire thing. And he said, I am dying. And he began to repeat the lie that I have heard Satan tell so many of you. And if I could just repeat that in some words right now, you may recognize it. This is the lie 
that because I can't fix this, I can't fix anything. Until I can correct this, I cannot do anything of worth in this world. I just have to wait for the Lord to take me because all of my usefulness is tied up in an event that I can't correct. He couldn't correct it. He couldn't go back. He would live it with it the rest of his life. But you see what Satan was telling him. That you can't fix that equals that you can't fix anything. And that you are of no more use in this world. I said, man, you bought it big. There's lots that God can continue to use you in. Your repentance is genuine. There are many things yet for you to do. He said, I know that I have forgiveness. I can't sense the forgiveness. You know, I have said to you many times, the way for your forgiveness to come to you in your experience is to continue working in what God wants you to do. And that's when your head knowledge will become your heart assurance. So we're going to line him up for ministry. Now let me ask you, have you bought it? Have you bought that lie? That because of one event in your past that you can't fix, you've got to stay transfixed on that, and you can't really do anything else until you get that fixed? Have you bought that lie? You know, do you not, that a great novel is not made of one plot with one protagonist. Usually there's one protagonist with many plots, many sub plots woven together. Are you so sure that God only had one thing for you to do in your life? And unless you did that well, that was the end of your story? That is a lie from hell. Given to you to mesmerize you and fix you on that thing. I'm not saying that there's not things that all of us need not regret. And if opportunity comes, certainly we need to do whatever learning, whatever recompense we can make for that event. But to be transfixed so that we can be gigged is not what God wants. Not for you, not for me. We have in this culture an entire vocabulary developing to put us in a no-fault position so that we don't have to take responsibility for our lives. As a matter of fact, John Leo wrote about it this week in uh, uh, U.S. News and World Report. He calls it no-fault syntax. Not S-Y-N, syntax. No-fault syntax. Um, When John Sununu was was addressed about his uh, use of travel funds from the White House, you know what he said? Well, you know, some mistakes were made. What does that say? Nothing. I mean, it takes all guilt, wads it up, and throws it into the stratosphere so nobody has to handle it. John Zanunu is not at all unique. All of us look for passive language that we don't have to take responsibility to say, I blew it. You know what? If you can say, I blew it, you can also say, but I don't have to live there. I don't have to live there. 
You can also say, I can start what you don't have to say, I know how to correct it. You can start walking. Marion Barry, when he was faced about his drug use, at first denied it. And then when, he, when they came back to Mary Marion Barry, he said, well, that wasn't really me talking. That was the drugs talking. Drugs can't talk. People talk. Say, I sin. And I'm not going to live in it. I'm not going to stay there. You don't have to know where you're going to have hope. You don't have to know how to correct it to have hope. Let me show you one more passage. Romans chapter 8. This is our text. Verse 24. In hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Why would one hope for what he sees? (laughs) But if we hope... For what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. You don't have to have... That's another lie of Satan, that you have to know where you're going before you start the journey. That wasn't the experience of the Bible. Abram didn't know where he was going. He just knew where he wasn't supposed to be living. That's the one fact he had. You don't belong here anymore. Okay. Where am I going? Don't know. When am I going to get there? Don't know. But I know I don't need to live here any longer. I know God doesn't want me to live here any longer. God doesn't want you to live with the sin that has mesmerized you. With the problem that has taken away your hope. So much so that maybe you don't even ask God for relief anymore. I want you to live there. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, come to us and help us focus on that event in our lives or those thought patterns that continue to to hold us in bondage. And Lord God, help us to repent, but help us to walk away. There is so much you have left for us to do. And Satan would have us stay in those memories to be totally ineffective. There is so much more to the purpose of our lives. And Satan would never let us experience forgiveness and usefulness. Lead us, Father. We don't have to know where. We just have to know you're leading us. And we have that promise in your Son. If any would come after me, let us lay our life down. Not only the things we value, but the things that would hold us in bondage and follow you. We pray in your name. Amen.